much, Bex, uh, for praying for us. Uh, you'll, know, you'll know if you've been here before that this isn't the normal pattern of things. Normally we have the reading first, uh, but we're switching it up just a little bit tonight because it is such an exciting, and it's one of my favorite passages of the entire Bible, and I hope that maybe by the end of it, it'll be one of your favorites too. If we haven't met before, my name's Peter. I'm one of the pastors here at Uni Church. If this is your first time with us, we're really, really glad you're with us. Uh, do fill out one of those Welcome to Church cards, uh, and that's a way for us to get in touch with you uh, through the week, and to let you know of the ways that we can help you, to let you, so that you can let us know of the way that we can help you. Sorry, that echoes a little bit distracting. Uh, please do fill one of those out if this is your first time with us. Over the summer, we've been dipping in and out of the Psalms. The Psalms are that songbook, the prayer book of God's people, and it has been the song and prayer book of God's people for the past 3,000 years. And as we've been working through the Psalms, if you've been with us uh, for any of them, I really hope that you've seen three things. I hope you've learned three things. The first thing I hope you've learned is more of the Old Testament story. The Psalms shed incredible light on various incidents and episodes in the Old Testament story, especially around the life of King David. I hope you've grown in your knowledge of the Old Testament through that. I hope you've seen as well that although they were written 3,000 years ago, they provide excellent models of prayer for Christians today. We may be separated from the authors of the Psalms, often King David, by three millennia, yet they still provide amazing models for God's people today in 2021. And more than any of that, I hope you've been convinced that these Psalms, written a thousand years before Jesus was born, point to and are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. We have amazing prophecy in the Old Testament that Christ himself confirms. Last week, if you were with us, we saw Psalm 58, and there we saw David's cry for justice. And although written 3,000 years ago, it provided a model for Christian cries for justice, patient prayer, no taking revenge. And ultimately, we saw that Jesus is the one who will both do the judging we all long for, and is the one who will rescue us from the judgment we deserve. Two weeks ago, we were in Psalm 51, and there we saw David cry out for forgiveness and cry out for a sacrifice that actually works. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. And we saw that Jesus' death was the only sacrifice that can actually bring forgiveness. Three weeks ago, we were in Psalm 30, and there we saw the pattern of Jesus' life and the pattern of all Christian life, suffering first, then glory. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Though these words were written a thousand years before Jesus, these Psalms are Christian prayers, and they are Christian prayers because they are about Jesus. And the Psalm we're looking at this morning is very like that, but it's like that on steroids. Because in this Psalm we're looking at this evening, we see a fulfillment of prophecy that you literally just couldn't make up. Throughout the New Testament, the writers repeatedly point back to the Psalms, often to this Psalm in particular, to say, look, what God promised a thousand years ago has finally come true. And I don't know of any chapter in the Bible, apart from maybe Isaiah 53, where we see such a clear fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. 
all the other Psalms we've seen point forward to Jesus. They show us that Jesus is the answer that the Psalms have been looking for. But here in our Psalm this evening, which is Psalm 22, we find not simply things pointing towards Jesus, but we find the words of Jesus himself. We find some of the most detailed, the most miraculous, the most amazing account of what Jesus went through, written down 1,000 years before he was born. This is the psalm that Jesus prayed on the cross. In fact, you can read Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24 as Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Over these three psalms, we see an amazing fulfillment of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, but that is for another day. We're in Psalm 22. It is the psalm Jesus prayed on the cross. Sometimes uh, whenever I'm studying the Old Testament, I like to go and see what some Jewish scholars make of the passage. As you might well imagine, they often work really hard to say, well, this is nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus has nothing to do with the psalm. This has all been invented after the fact. What's amazing is that in Psalm 22, even here they admit this does sound an awful lot like crucifixion. They sort of admit it through gritted teeth. And it's even more amazing when you, when you realize that crucifixion as a form of punishment hadn't been invented yet. Crucifixion was invented around 500 years after this psalm was written. This psalm is a very long one, and I'm going to read it for us in a moment. And we're not going to look at every verse. You'll be glad to know. But as I read, if you're a Christian here this evening, and if you're not a Christian, but you're in some way familiar with Jesus' death, as I read, see how many references to Jesus' death you can find in this amazing psalm. Uh, Whenever I was working through it this week, I found 17 references to Jesus' death and 13 references to the result of Jesus' death, what happened because of Jesus' death. And in 31 verses, that's, I think that's pretty amazing. I'm going to pray, and then I'll read the psalm, and then we'll dive in together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing word that points us to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. As we listen to your word now, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, Help us to see exactly what you have done for us in your son. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Grab your Bibles uh, or turn your Bibles on uh, and we're, we're going to work. We're going to read Psalm 22 together. As I said, it is a long one, uh, so do, do bear with us. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man 
scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. As I said, we're not going to look at every verse in that psalm. We're not even going to think about David as he wrote this psalm, which is a very much a break in pattern if you've been with us before. These are the words of Jesus on the cross. In fact, if you look at Matthew's account and Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion, these are the only words of Jesus that they record. If you've been through the life course, you'll know those verses. Here's how Mark puts it. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Both Matthew and Mark only record the first verse of this psalm, but it is entirely possible, probable even, that the Lord Jesus prayed, maybe even sang, this entire psalm on the cross. If you look at John's account of the crucifixion, the last thing that Jesus says is, it is finished, which is very, very similar to the last word in this psalm, he has done it. 
sometimes possible that Jesus prayed, sang this whole psalm on the cross. And even if he didn't, he certainly was drawing the attention of those around him to this psalm. You see, in Jesus' day, if you went to the synagogue, uh, which if you were a good Jew, you would have done every Saturday, and you would have sang or prayed psalms together. And you'd know the psalms really, really well. You see, they didn't have personal Bibles of their own. They had scrolls in the synagogue, and people had to learn the psalms off by heart. And the psalms didn't have any numbers in those days. And so if you were a Jew in the synagogue, you wouldn't have got up and said, uh, please uh, open your Bibles, we're going to sing Psalm 22 together. You would have just said, we're going to sing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people would have sung it together. What Jesus is doing is announcing the hymn to the congregation in front of him. So I think there's a very good chance that Jesus prayed all of these words on the cross. So at the very least, he's pointing his readers towards the psalm. He may have said them all himself. And I think he did this because this psalm highlights especially three things about the death of God's Messiah. And remember, Messiah just means Christ. Christ is the Greek word. Uh, Messiah is the Hebrew word. Both words just mean the anointed one. This is, the, this is a psalm about God's Messiah. And it highlights the forsakenness of the Messiah. It highlights the faith of the Messiah. And it highlights the finished work of the Messiah. His forsakenness, his faith, and his finished work. And we're going to think about those three things uh, for the next few minutes. So first of all, the forsakenness of the Messiah. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? One of the first words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? The Messiah's torment appears first and foremost to be spiritual. He feels abandoned, forsaken, that's what forsaken means, by God. He calls him my God, so he hasn't completely distanced himself from God. He hasn't turned his back on God at all, but he feels abandoned by God. So he's feeling this spiritual torment, but we see from the rest of the psalm that the thing he really focuses in on is his physical torment, his physical forsakenness. Look at verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It melts within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me down in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. It's difficult to imagine a, a better description of what a crucifixion looked like. Crucifixion, as I said, wasn't invented until 500 years after this psalm was written. But in Jesus' day, 500 years after that, David, Jesus is 0 BC, David is 1000 BC, crucifixion was very common, and it was known for just how horrific it could be. The Romans crucified thousands, maybe millions of people. It was a form of capital punishment that was reserved for the very worst type of criminals. 
they very, very rarely crucified anyone who was a Roman citizen because they deemed it too shameful a death for anyone who officially belonged to Rome. That's why tradition tells us that Paul was decapitated for preaching about Jesus because he was a Roman citizen, whereas Peter, who was not a Roman citizen, was crucified. Before crucifixion, the prisoner was whipped. He was whipped with a thing called, often called a cat of nine tails. It was nine leather straps with pieces of bone, pieces of metal sewn into the end. They would whip your back, and as the whip connected with your back, the bone and the metal would pierce the skin, and as the whip is pulled away, strips of skin would be torn off, exposing the muscle and the bone beneath. Traditionally, you were whipped 39 times. Uh, so, you know, one whip, you may not have lost a lot of skin, but by whip 39, your back was basically gone. After the whipping, you had to carry the crossbar of the crucifix to the site of your crucifixion. The bar would have been laying down on the ground uh, on top of the pole, the upright pole of the cross, and seven-inch metal spikes were driven into your hands, sometimes your wrists, and your feet. After that, the cross was lifted up and slotted into a hole in the ground, and you hung there, waiting to die. You might think that crucifixion kills through blood loss. That's certainly what I thought uh, growing up whenever I heard about Jesus' death. But crucifixion kills you through suffocation. Everyone, take a breath. Feel how your chest rises uh, when you breathe. As the prisoner hung there, arms outstretched, it got harder and harder, even if you just hold your arms out, don't do it, you know, we're socially distanced and all that. Even if you hold your arms out, you can feel it gets a little bit harder to breathe after uh, a few tries. And so eventually, your, your, the muscles in your side would wear out, and you'd have to put all of your weight onto your arms just to get your chest up, just to take a breath your arms with nails through them. Often, your shoulders would become dislocated from the immense pressure of trying to breathe, and so then you would have to try and use your legs to do the lifting, to do the breathing. Eventually, if you were taking too long to die, the Romans would come along with a big hammer and smash your knees so that you couldn't put your weight on it anymore, and you would hang there and die of suffocation. The Gospels tell us that Jesus died before his bones w w could be broken. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, whenever a lamb was sacrificed, it had to be a perfect lamb without blemish, couldn't have any broken bones. Jesus' bones were not broken on the cross. Rather, they took a spear and stuck it into his side, and blood and water gushed out. That's what happened the Lord Jesus on what we call Good Friday. And what do we find in Psalm 22? We find the Messiah whose bones are on display. We find the Messiah whose joints have been dislocated. 
we find the Messiah whose heart has melted within him. We find a Messiah thirsting. We find the Messiah with his hands and feet pierced. Whenever we see paintings uh, of Jesus on the cross, very often uh, he's wearing a nice little loincloth uh, around him to, you know, to cover up his private parts. But that's probably quite inaccurate, that people were often uh, crucified naked, completely naked. And when Jesus died, he, the soldiers beneath him, they gambled for his clothes. He had this tunic that was woven from one piece. It was probably quite an expensive tunic. And so they gambled for it to see who gets to take it home. Look at verse 18. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. What a picture. A thousand years before the fact of our crucified Messiah, our utterly forsaken Messiah. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whenever we feel forsaken, we don't really use that word, do we? When we feel abandoned, left out, uninterested in by God, it can be quite tempting to sort of hate God a little bit, can't it? God, why are you doing this to me? This isn't fair. You might know the story of Job in the Old Testament who had some of the worst things imaginable happen to him. After uh, his last child had died, his wife said to him, Job, just curse God and die. What does God's Messiah do in the depths of his suffering? He expresses his faith in God. He praises God even in the midst of unimaginable suffering. Look at verse 3. You are the enthroned, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. What does the Messiah do when he feels forsaken? He expresses his faith in God. And he recounts to God, God's faithfulness to his people. In the midst of his deepest suffering, the Messiah remembers God's faithfulness to his ancestors. That's the word he uses. Who are his ancestors? Well, it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the Israelites in Egypt and in the wilderness. You see, the Messiah knows that even in the deepest moment of his suffering, God keeps his promises. What was that promise? So Jesus dies in 33 AD. David writes, David lives 1000 BC. 1000 years before David, so 2000 BC, God made a promise to a man called Abraham. You can read about it in Genesis 12 onwards. God promised that Abraham, God promised Abraham that one day, one of his descendants was going to bless the entire world. Abraham, you might know, had no children. And so this is a promise, you know, that seemed a bit strange. I've got no kids, I'm very old, but my descendant is going to bless the world. 
God miraculously gave Abraham Isaac, his son. Isaac had two sons. Jacob had 12 sons. And sort of they just kept multiplying out until the Jewish nation uh, emerged. Ever since God made that promise to Abraham, God's people have been on the lookout for that descendant of Abraham who's going to fulfill that promise. Who is the one who will bless the world? Who is the descendant of Abraham? No one could have imagined that Abraham's blessed descendant would bless the world in such a horrific way as this. Although we see David has a bit of an inkling about that, and we'll get to that later. See, we read time and time again in the Gospels that Jesus, as he gathered his followers around him, he said to them again and again and again, guys, I am going to die. But they didn't believe him. The concept of a crucified Messiah was unimaginable to them. God's promised king, God's promised rescuer. How on earth could he ever endure crucifixion? The very shame of crucifixion, never mind the agony that it caused, the very shame of hanging there naked on display for the world to see was unthinkable to a first century Jew. Earlier in the Old Testament, it says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. How on earth could God's king who's going to bring blessing to the whole world, how could he be cursed by God? That, it, it's unimaginable. And yet it was precisely by God's king being cursed that the whole world was blessed. We are blessed because he was Jesus prays this psalm on the cross. He feels forsaken, yet he expresses his faith because Jesus knew what we saw in Psalm 30 two weeks ago. Jesus knew that the pattern of his life was suffering first, then glory. That's the pattern that Jesus lived. It's the pattern he prescribes for everyone who follows him. If you're here this evening and you're not a Christian and someone's told you, you know, become a Christian and life will be wonderful, it's the answer to all your problems, that's not true. Jesus said, whoever wants to follow me must pick up their cross and follow me. Suffering first, then glory. But and in the midst of that suffering, Jesus does not deny God. He doesn't doubt God because he knows that God is faithful. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. Jesus knew it's suffering first, then glory. Now you might have noticed uh, as I read it, um, if you hadn't tuned out by the end, I know I can be a bit monotonous as I read. Maybe you noticed in Psalm 22 that there was a really quite dramatic shift in tone in the last third of the psalm. In verse 1 to 21, the Messiah describes his unimaginable suffering. He calls on God for help. And then in verse 22, the tone completely changes. In fact, there's such a change 
between verse 21 to 21 to 22 onwards that some people think, oh, well, this must be two poems that were stuck together uh, somehow because they're, they're just so different. But, but that's not the case at all. Look at, we'll go from verse 20. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. Do you see the difference? Do you see the change? What we find in Psalm 22 is that the forsakenness of the Messiah and the faith of the Messiah leads to the finished work of the Messiah. And that's what the last verse is all about. Look at what the Messiah has accomplished. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. That's the language of Genesis. Every nation will be blessed. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. David has been given a glimpse as he writes this psalm of God's plan to bless the world through the descendant of Abraham. Here we have a prophecy of the fulfillment of that promise. All the nations will be blessed through this offspring. He, God, has done it. Because we live in a culture that has been Christian, a form of Christian, for a very long time, because Christianity has been around for 2,000 years, and you know we've had the immense privilege of benefiting from its impact on the world, the idea that every nation would have access to God seems like no big deal. It seems really obvious, doesn't it? In fact, we think it's everyone's right, don't we, to have access to God because we're all equal. The reason we think that way is because we've imbibed Christianity, even if we've you know, even if we're not Christians ourselves, the only reason you think that way is because of the impact Christianity has had on your culture. The idea that everyone should have access to God, that's obvious, isn't it? That idea was absolutely unheard of in the Old Testament. It was unheard of in the first century that everyone would worship the same God, that God the, the one God of the universe would welcome people of all tribes and nations. That, that, that un, unimaginable to anyone who didn't know their Old Testament, that that's what God promised. In the Old Testament, the worship of God was restricted. It was restricted to the land of Israel. It was restricted to the city of Jerusalem. It was restricted to the location of the temple. That's where God's presence dwelt. That's the only place you could offer sacrifices to him. And yet... Here, before the temple is even built, 1,000 years before Jesus walked this earth, we find the means of God blessing the entire world. We find the result of God blessing the entire world. 
miraculously foretold. The forsaken, faithful Messiah fulfills God's promise to bless the whole world. What does that mean for us? Does that mean, if you're a Christian, that the forsaken Messiah was forsaken in your place? He was forsaken so that you could be granted access to God and to eternal life. Put it another way. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we never have to. Jesus cried that, so we don't have to. The Christian, the person who places their trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus is united to Jesus. So they know for certain that God will never forsake them because Jesus has already been forsaken for them. He's been forsaken in their place. If you're a Christian here this evening, you've undoubtedly had moments of doubt. Maybe you're going through a period of doubt at the moment, right now. Has God actually forgiven me? Can God really forgive me after I failed him again? I promised him I wasn't going to do it anymore, and I've done it again. Can God really forgive me? Look at Jesus. Jesus was forsaken in your place. So you need never fear that God will abandon you. God keeps his promises. He's the God who never lies. God will never abandon you if you're in Christ because Christ has been forsaken for you. Now we know that that does not mean you will not suffer. We've seen it time and time again in the Psalms. Paul in the New Testament says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. If you're a Christian, that means you're in Christ. You're united to Christ. The idea is everywhere in the New Testament. What that means is if you're united to Christ, it means that Christ's perfect life becomes your perfect life. You don't need to worry about your record of righteousness because you have Christ's record of righteousness. Not only does Christ's perfect life become your life, Christ's forgiveness bringing death becomes your forgiveness. So you don't need to keep earning God's forgiveness. You can't earn God's forgiveness. You already have it in Christ. You're united to him. You have that forgiveness. Christ's life gives you your righteousness. Christ's death brings you forgiveness. And Christ's resurrection assures you of eternal life. Eternal life. That means that when you die, you will go to be with Christ. But more than that, when you're raised on the last day to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth as God has promised, you can be sure that that's going to happen because Jesus rose from the dead. And on that day, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. That is the message of the gospel. 
that is what this psalm depicts. Look at verse 30 again. Future generations will be told about the Lord. That's you. You are those future generations who have been told about the Lord. This tonight in Belfast at 8.29 on the 15th of August, 2021, this psalm is being fulfilled. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. That's what we're doing right now. It's what we're going to do at Big Weekend this week. Declare to a people who has not yet been born from David's perspective that he has done it. God has done it. He has blessed the world through Abraham's seed. He's done it in the most unimaginable way possible. He's done it by forsaking the blessed one. And yet, though he was forsaken, he remained faithful. And his work is now finished. Isn't Psalm 22 an amazing psalm? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks and praise for the amazing way that you fulfilled all your promises in this psalm and throughout the Old Testament in the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that because he prayed, why have you forsaken me? We need never pray those words. And yet we know when we feel forsaken that we have not been because Christ has been forsaken for us. Thank you for Christ's forsakenness. Thank you for his faith in the midst of that. Thank you for his finished work. It is finished. You have done it. Father, help us to rest in that. Help us to know for certain that we are forgiven if we've trusted in Christ. Help us to proclaim that to each other and to those not yet born as we await that day when we will see Christ and we will be made like him. We ask this in his name. Amen.